the way that we've kind of organized our lives now, illness and recovery and grief, we don't want to think about that. So they're pushed aside or it's handled in this invisible fear. And then when you slip through, then you're you're not prepared. You're not equipped in any way because you haven't had a model of how do you do this? How do you maintain your own family life and care for this person? How do you know what to cook for someone whose doctor has told them they can't have salt, but all they want is salt? Yeah. There aren't any models for that. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. When my father died nearly 10 years ago, our family received lots of condolence cards, phone calls, and flowers, which were all very much appreciated. But for me, the most comforting gesture were the trays of food brought to our house by fellow mourners. I knew I had to eat, but I was so numb with grief, the last thing I could think to do was pull together a meal. Thankfully, all I had to do was reach into our bulging refrigerator and heat up one of the many prepared dishes. In times of illness and sorrow, and certainly in times of caregiving, there's nothing like the gift of food. So today, I'm happy to welcome one of those gift givers. Janet Elsbach is a mom, a blogger, a teacher, a cook, and author of the witty and beautifully illustrated cookbook, Extra Helping, Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community One Dish at a Time. Janet, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So in Extra Helping, you note that food has always been love to you and that you grew up in a household where the table was the point. I wonder if you could share a little bit about where you grew up and some of the foods that made you, in your words, scoot closer to the table. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I grew up between New York City and um, the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, which are um, pretty different places. Yeah. And our circle of friends, really in both places, most of the social gatherings that I remember, family events, they all centered on food. We've had Thanksgiving for, somebody counted it up recently, 35 years, I think, with the same family. They were the people who originally introduced my parents to the Berkshires, where I now live full time. Mm-hmm. And we started sharing Thanksgiving with them years and years ago. And as people have married and had children and the families have grown, it's become this enormous feast. But it's really the center of our family life is that idea of gathering around the table. Mm-hmm. Any favorite foods that you remember from your childhood? Well, the matriarch of the family I'm referring to is a uh, Chinese-American who was raised in Texas but has uh, written some Chinese cookbooks, and so she is a lethal weapon in the kitchen. She was really a guiding force in my childhood and as I've grown, and she and my mom used to get together once a week in the summertime and try to perfect some particular dish that was driving them both crazy that they needed to recapture. And my mom you know, has an Eastern European background, so a lot of Jewish comfort food was mm-hmm. part of our upbringing. Uh, there was a woman from Grenada who was part of our household for a long time, so there's a lot of West Indian overlay. I sort of describe myself as a magpie. I like to sort of <laughs> pick and choose from the various places. And my sister has a very close friend who's Indian, and uh, I love South Asian food, and I'm just always selecting little bright, shiny objects from especially comfort food, which yeah. is so interesting to me, the things that are consistent and the things that are different. But I traveled through Cuba with my daughter in her Spanish class from 
high school and someone had some traveler's complaint. And so I asked one of our hosts for a banana and they looked at me like I was crazy because to me, you know, the various places that I had traveled and been taught when your stomach's upset, you eat a banana. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was no, absolutely not <laughs> really the wrong way to go as far as they were concerned. But there are so many things that are consistent kinds of rice pudding and chicken soup and types of, you know, hot drinks and things like that, that I'm I'm always interested to see how those morph as they move around the globe. Yeah. You wrote that you've chased some strange ingredients, healing nutrition and good food all your life, and now it has come to this. Um, (laughs) This is your first cookbook, right? Yes. So what inspired you to pull it all together? It's really beautiful. Well, thank you. Years ago, a friend of mine invited me to be part of a women's writer's evening, and I realized I needed something, although I'd been writing on my own for a while, I needed sort of something out in the world to stand for this interest of mine. And it was in the early days of blogs existing, and someone said, well, start a blog. And I, I said, what am I going to have something to say about every day? And she said, well, everybody wants to know what you guys are having for dinner. Just write about that. So I started a food blog, and it was right around the time that my oldest sister was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So starting to write about food and put my writing out there coincided with entering this period of really intense caregiving for my sister and receiving care from our circle as she went through her illness and we went through her death. And then there was a lot more illness and events going on in my family at the time. So it was just sort of a crash course in both giving the care to whoever I was looking after directly and just receiving the additional support that was required for my little family to be able to offer that mm-hmm. to my relatives that were stricken. Mm-hmm. And the I, cookbook really came from that. And the cookbook came out of that. Okay. How long did it take you to uh, produce this? It's so detailed <laughs> um, <laughs> and multi-layered. In, in many ways, it's very detailed. I mean, I would hesitate to say it's a life's work because I certainly wasn't yeah. working on a book over the course of my life. But when I sat down to write it, um, and it was my friend Alana who the same group of friends who said, no, write this blog, said, now write a book. Uh-huh. And I said, okay, what do I write it about? <laughs> and she said, well, you're so good at showing up with food. Just write about that. And so I started pulling from not just the writing that existed on the blog, but what I'd internalized over the years of being looked after. I've had very good luck <laughs> being looked after by some incredible family members and friends. There's a certain intuition for how to nourish somebody when they're taxed in some way. And I've always paid attention to that. So it, it was harder to narrow down what to put in the book than it was to amass enough to put in there. And then when the mechanism of just thinking about it in terms of different life situations really helped me to put each collection together, each chapter's collection of rest. Right. Well, let's talk about the way the book is organized because it is organized in a very particular way more or less from birth to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about that. Different yeah. lifestyle, different life cycle occasions, I guess you could say. Yeah, like I was sort of struggling to think about how to put it together. And when that matrix appeared, it just everything, I don't know if you've had that experience where just everything, all of a sudden you go, oh, 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 okay. So this goes there and this goes there. Like, you know, sort of organizing a closet. It's like, oh, okay, now this makes sense. And then thinking of each life event in terms of, you know, the different kinds of things you need to offer somebody, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, a snack, a Uh beverage, that kind of thing. It was a hard process to get to push some things aside, but it helped to think about each chapter that way. Yeah. I don't think a cookbook has ever been organized that way, at least that I know. (laughs) It's funny you're saying that because when you do a book proposal, one of the things counterintuitive to me that you have to establish is that other books like your book exist. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled to find anything later than about 1920 that was this idea of 
cooking for, you know, sort of called invalid cookery or in that time period. But there's a lot of special diet for this particular ailment kind of cookbooks or uh-huh. this particular belief system. And a lot of cooking as gifts, you know, banana breads and beautiful things in the mason jar. But I couldn't find other than the woman who wrote Laurel's Kitchen wrote a cookbook about caring for people with food. And I found that kind of late in the process. But that was really it was interesting to see that I think that was written in the 70s. That was very vegetarian nature bound cooking, but it was hard to find a model or another example of something like that. And I think it speaks to somebody once said to me, it's a little bit of a digression, but somebody once said, when you go to Disney World, you don't see anyone emptying the trash, mm-hmm. which you don't really notice when you're walking around Disney World, but mm-hmm. it's all done from underneath. It all gets sucked down into this underworld where all the maintenance takes place. And I remember thinking about that again the first time I was helping to look after it was a friend in this case, somebody who was really ill, that it was like you moved into this other universe that just wasn't visible in day-to-day life. And I think it speaks to the the way that we've kind of organized our lives now, that illness and recovery and grief, we don't want to think about that. So they're pushed aside or it's, it's handled in this invisible sphere. And then when you slip through, then you're you're not prepared. You're not equipped in any way because you haven't had a model of how do you do this? How do you maintain your own family life and care for this person? How do you know what to cook for someone whose doctor has told them they can't have salt, but all they want is salt? There aren't any models for that. So I found it really motivating that I couldn't find another example of a book like this because what I wanted to give people more than, you know, how to make this particular Peruvian chicken soup was just a place to start. Mm Mm-hmm. Start somewhere. Here's a little bit of information to get you started and then pay attention to the person you're taking care of and then it'll build from there. But I was really struck by the sort of wasteland of (laughs) guidebooks to help people understand this such a basic thing. Yeah. If you've gotten through anything from morning to night, a day of sickness, a day of health, a day of anything, doing your tax returns, you've eaten something. Everybody eats one unifying thing. So it's such a basic sort of world of information and we're not giving people any guidance on how to how to do it. Well, I love the idea that for you it's not just an expression of love, but it's essentially a form of care. You even refer to the lunch boxes packed for your kids when they were young as a care package I pack every day. <laughs> you know, over the course of three children and a lot of school I didn't always have such romantic feelings uh-huh, about the lunch sure. box. In, my, in a perfect world. And that it comes felt across like in the writing. <laughs> I love the fact that each chapter begins sort of with an introduction of some kind that is a little bit educational, but it really doesn't read that way. I mean, your writing is really kind of this blend of whimsical and philosophical, academic and a little hip, you know. Um, It seems like you did as much writing as assembling of recipes. Did you have to do a lot of research for this? I had definitely had to coalesce a lot of things that were just in the back of my head kind of formlessly Uh and that that (laughs) informed a way of looking that would for example set me off thinking about the rice pudding that my mother used to make or the rice pudding that my friend Susie makes then I started looking at how you know how does that manifest around the world Mm -hmm. and it was a little bit of a dangerous road to go down because at that point I felt like I could have written you know the Encyclopedia Britannica of invalid cookery because there's so much out there in the world. So it kind of opened things up and then I had to pull it back in to, you know, the limited amount of space that I had to do it. But by training or in terms of my life, I'm more of a writer than a, I'm a home cook. I'm not a mm-hmm. food professional by any uh-huh. stretch of imagination. And I always try to emphasize that because people will say, you know, I didn't go to cooking school and I, I certainly didn't go to cooking school. It just has to do with what you pay attention to 
And it's all through the prism of really just being a home cook. I was raised by people who did a lot of cooking, but I didn't go to professional cooking school. Mm -hmm. Janet, in the introduction to Food for Solace, that chapter, the introduction itself was really moving. You wrote about your sister's illness and your grief following her death. I wondered if you could reflect on this period a little bit when you were no longer traveling and now you were receiving sustenance instead of providing it. Um, I've just read a wonderful book called How to Be Loved by a Mm. woman named Ava Hagberg Fisher. And she talks about these various situations in her life where she had to learn how to receive being, you know, sort of an independent person or being more inclined to offer help than to receive it. And it is, it is as much of a skill set as offering, Uh especially if you've been in the mode of caregiving where your life, I'm sure you know, is just ruled by the needs of this person that you're taking care of. And then there's the inconvenient fact of your actual life, your own family and your own work obligations and things like that. And trying to shoehorn all that in mm-hmm. to the limited number of hours in a day. And then if it just happens to be in a case where somebody dies, then there's this thud. You know, you come mm-hmm. into this period of time where your time is just not as full as it has been. And Grief itself is just exhausting, and I've always been amazed every time by how physical an experience it is. It's mm-hmm. not just an intellectual exercise, you know, something happens in your mind. It's a very physical feeling. And we had been really well cared for, I don't mean in any way to minimize that, through her illness and the amount of traveling that I'd had to do. Friends were showing up for my family at home all throughout that process. But then to be home and just to be basically unemployed, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when you've been taking care of them, yeah. it sort of feels like you're out of a job in a way. And then you're alone with these very intense feelings, just learning how to admit that you needed the dinner or having it provided for you and receiving it are two related but not identical things. You know, Mm -hmm. someone can show up for you with dinner, but if you, I just learned this phrase, if you receive it in your worthiness, you know, if you receive it intentionally, it's a whole different experience. Not just, oh, yeah, I'm too busy to get dinner with him. Oh, thank goodness there's a lasagna. But, oh, I exist in community. And I can't provide for myself right now. And here are these people who can provide for me. It really informs the way I look out for other people now, having received it. You know, I think I showed up for people in grief in a completely different way before having those very personal losses than I do now. What's the difference? It kind of carries over across, you know, this struck me writing the book. Curiosity is really the nugget of all of these things. Somebody said to me when my sister was first diagnosed, she was an expert in the particular kind of cancer that my sister had. And she said, I'll tell you everything I know, but remember that your sister is a statistic of one. She's having her own experience of this illness. It will manifest in her in her own particular ways. And everything that's in the books and everything the doctors know and everything you can look up online has limited relevance. It's really what's happening for her. And, you know, I've forgotten more than I can count of the things people have told me, but that really struck me. And she, my yeah. sister was a very individual person, and yeah. I learned a lot about self-determination from her as she went through that process. But that idea of just paying attention to this particular person, despite what you've read and despite how, how you think this is going to affect them or you, just be curious about that. Like, what are they actually hungry for? What do they actually miss? You know, what is important to them? And you can read from morning to night about the stages of grief and all that kind of stuff. But if you show up to someone's house and you just look and see, you know, oh, gosh, they don't need another lasagna. Look at this kitchen. Like, let's put this together in a way that makes sense. Or some people need to be left alone, and they mean it. 
And yeah. some people need to be left alone and they really don't. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and figuring all that stuff out. I think curiosity and trying to show up without too much ego, you know, be okay with them and not needing you mm-hmm. in that moment. And don't let that become, well, they don't need me, so I'm not going to come back because I've learned it's so cyclical and it, it can spin very quickly. Today, I may want to be left alone, but tomorrow I might not. Right. And if you can continue to just offer and learn from what's rejected and what's accepted and what they're interested in, what you know about them, what seems appealing to them, I feel like that really informs more than, oh, you know, on day four, you bring right. a casserole. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where was your sister living? Because I know you did travel. Um, she was living in Westchester. Um, I live in the Berkshires, so our houses are about two hours apart. But she okay. went all over the world looking for care. I see. It's a very particular belief system about the kind of care that she was open to. And that was a real struggle for our family because a lot of people, and this is true, I mean, again, of speaking of things that are universal, when you have a baby, any kind of life experience, you are going to encounter people who know exactly what you should be doing. Mm-hmm. And sort of like the woman said to me, it's really only as relevant as it is relevant. (laughs) Mm. If somebody tells you that, you know, lima beans are going to cure you, but you don't want to eat lima beans, you know, you're going to have to get in right relation to that. You're either going to need to own your desire to not eat lima beans or come around to lima beans. Um, You know, everybody has their own set of tolerances and appetites and beliefs. And when that is forced into existence with a diagnosis, it looks different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And in terms of traveling out of the country to get care, would you, for instance, go with her? I'm trying yeah. to picture what that looked like. Um, she traveled to Mexico and to Germany, once to Mexico, twice to Germany. And then she was always on the hunt for people domestically. So there was a small group of people that were taking care of her and we would do it in rotation and we would each take a period of time. And that became my education in, well, if if I'm doing that, it's a real round robin. You know, if I've been plucked out of my own life to show up here, my life is still going on. Those lunchboxes still need to be packed. They still need dinner every night. So it really was, like I said, it was like an education in community because I could only do that for my sister because somebody was offering care to my family at home. And that cycle is endless. I used to work with new moms and I met a lot of people that way, but also just having children myself and being in school communities women who were just almost like religiously devoted to this idea of showing up for people who've had a baby mm-hmm. because they either had a very visceral memory of someone showing up for them when their baby was born. And you're so vulnerable and so hungry mm-hmm. in every way at that point, both for the food and for some sense of community or not being shown up for it. I did an event for the book in Seattle and there was a woman sitting during the presentation just nodding and nodding and nodding and she came up to me afterwards and she said, I'm a pastor's wife and we had moved to a new community because he had started with a new church and when we had our first baby, nobody came. Oh boy. And she was sobbing, sobbing and she said, and I vowed in that moment, like basically nobody would have a baby within 40 miles of me (laughs) and not get dinner. And her children were grown, but it was clearly just still such a painful memory for her. And I met so many women who were just absolutely devoted mm-hmm. to bringing food to new families when a baby arrived. It's another one of those veils that you pass through, especially with the first baby. Um, you've gone from life without children to having this dependent creature. And it's kind of the first introduction to the other people around you who are raising children and yeah. who will be your, right. your community. You know, I've interviewed a lot of caregivers and... They have traveled to a sibling or a parents, even an estranged parent, to care for them. But I don't think I've really heard a lot 
from people who have whose care schedule was what sounds like somewhat unpredictable in terms of location for you. Yeah, it was. There were three or four occasions where she went abroad, mm-hmm. and the rest of it was mostly where she lived. But she didn't live where I live, right. so all of us were doing this kind of round robin rotation traveling. Right. I mean, you had to gather passports, and so you were kind of a traveling caregiver. Really? <laughs> yeah, th- that was that was very interesting because there's a certain disorienting aspect that there's a chapter in the book about how you kind of reorient somebody who's been traveling because it's disorienting. Sure. You're out of your both the time difference and the cultural and environmental differences. Yeah. And then to be trying to maintain care for somebody under those circumstances was definitely challenging. Around all that. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing, I mean, the other thing which I think I touch on in the book is caregiving, is, as you, I'm sure you've found in your interviewing process, in your own life experience, it can be a very isolating experience. And then to be also on top of that in a foreign culture, was that was powerful, formative experience. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that you raised, and maybe you can talk about this, the importance of eating with someone who is sick. Not just making that, food and dropping it off, but eating with someone. Well, I, yeah, I think, you know, the legions of books that I could find, like I said, were sort of dietary, nutritional, informative about what kind of nutrition might be necessary. But there's so much more in food than just the calories and the nutrients. And because caregiving is very demanding, both emotionally and on your schedule, there's a checkbox kind of mentality that can happen where you're like, I got to get lunch up there. Okay, lunch is done. I'm going to go do the laundry. And what you're missing there is that not only have you and this person dropped out of regular life into the mode of illness, but that person has kind of dropped even further because, you know, you as a caregiver can code switch back and forth. You can go back to your uh-huh. regular life and sit down with your family. Yeah. But that person maybe can't. And there's this perfunctory quality that feeding someone can begin to take on. And you miss that. You realize this person maybe has been a month since they came down to dinner. Yeah. Or went out to lunch. Or, you know, if the person's occupied eating their food, then you're liberated to go and attend a one of the other bazillion things that needs to get done. Mm-hmm. But eating in community is sort of a foundational part of existing in community. Passing the salt and talking about your day as you're eating and, oh, I like this and I don't like this and all of that kind of exchange that happens micro and macro around a table. So I do try to talk about little ways to just make it dining again, not just checking off the box of this meal is now done. Mm-hmm. gets to the idea for you that food should be a source of support, really, and, mm-hmm. and not necessarily a chore or a medicine sort of thing. Right. Yeah. And there's so many very tempting roads you can go down that way that, you know, all these books about this diet will cure this disease or yeah. so forth. You're encouraged or restrictions are handed down from doctors about salt intake or fluid or protein or anything else that may be warranted by the lab work. And I think modern medicine is a whole other podcast, but modern medicine is probably overlooking a lot of ways in which food could be a source of healing. Mm -hmm. But even in a positive way, if you're looking at it that way, it's helpful to remember that there's more than just the amount of vitamin C in the serving of fruit. There's you know how it smells and it could look pretty in a bowl, even if you're harried and running around and you as the caregiver and the person who's offering it gain something by standing there and admiring the nectarine in your hand before you slice it and the person you're giving it to 
also receives more than just the vitamin C. If it's, you know, I've always sliced it, but I also fanned it out in the bowl uh-huh. or, or put it on a pretty napkin. Or, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you would be the first person to admit that your cookbook is not a medical book, but certainly, no. <laughs> but, but certainly it pays very close attention to the various ways in which food, ingredients can be tweaked to really support and restore one's health if you're caring for someone. It's kind of sneaky that way. And I like it for that reason. I mean, I would love to do a whole podcast on food as medicine, but you're right. I mean, it's not just the ingredients and the dish. It's the presentation. It's the waiting and the looking and the handing it to. And there are sort of processes. That's kind of a clinical word even, but the care that you engage just in preparing the meal and handing it over and sitting with someone, these are all Mm -hmm. healing properties in a way. And your book does a really nice job of including also variations to accommodate health needs. So I guess that is a good way for me to dovetail into this kind of existential question, which is, I know that your dad also had three cancers and Mm -hmm. your other sister had two cancers, right? Your middle sister, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. your older sister had cancer. But I wondered if your experience of their cancers changed the way that you cook. It's a bit of an existential question, but have at it. Okay, I'll try. Well, I think every one of those experiences changed me and changed what I pay attention to. And that curiosity that I was talking about before, Mm -hmm. looking at the person and finding out what they're hungry for and reconciling that with what they're allowed to have or can tolerate always pushes me to figure something out. I talk in the book about if somebody has 74 different things that they can't tolerate, you know, don't try to make a dairy-free, wheatless, vegetarian chicken pot pie. You know, make them something that actually draws on the things that they can have. But that question of appetite is, I mean, speaking of existential questions, like that is really intriguing to me, like what Hmm. we're hungry for. And listening to that, culturally, I think we're trained to kind of not listen to that anymore. Yeah. But listening to those appetites in yourself. And I definitely cue into that in a different way for myself, having watched and tried to satisfy those appetites in somebody who was going through something. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the teachers that I've had, that was what drew me to them is that they had that curiosity and that, this weird intensity around trying to solve for, well, if this person has had a feverish illness, what would cool them? Or if you have one of those head colds where you just can't ever feel hydrated, how do you counterbalance that? What can you offer them that will counterbalance that? And when I feel out of sorts with my body, it's a very quick way to kind of get back in accord is to listen to those kinds of things. What's the identifying characteristic mm-hmm. of how I feel right now? Mm-hmm. And then what would meet that? And caring for people when they're going through something definitely hones that ability. If you want to pay attention. Yeah. Are, your par- you are, your, are your parents still living? My dad is. My mom died in February, so we were oh, renewing so our sorry. relationship with loss and, and oh, receiving support. Thank oh my you. Gosh. And uh, my dad has Parkinson's, so he oh has an ongoing experience of illness that has its own set of demands. Yeah. I asked that question in part because I'm curious, but also because my mom is still alive and she's 90. And I've noticed as she's gotten older that her appetite has changed and there are certain things she enjoys now that she never used to really enjoy. And I find that fascinating. Like she has a real sweet tooth now and she never used Mm -hmm. to really eat a lot of sweets. 
have you found that with you know older I'm the just, older folks you know? <laughs> I'm selfishly taking that to mean that my quest to enjoy a poached egg may not be over. Maybe when I get really old, I'll, I'll love poached eggs. There's still time. There's still hope. What? Why is um, that so important to you? <laughs> I, I feel like I should have a better relationship with eggs. I feel like I, I love them, and I feel like it's a measure of your sort of tolerance of different foods that you. There's nothing that you say out of hand. I don't eat that. Right. Right. It seems so dogmatic, <laughs> extreme. Um, so, yeah, I think all of those things change. Just watching my children as they've grown. My oldest was an incredibly selective eater and you know, didn't like more than a certain number of foods involved and touching and whole categories of things that she didn't like. And she now orders the spicy eggplant. So I, I think there's a lot of transitions that we go through. And speaking to your point, if you're not dogmatic about it, if you just allow it to ebb and flow, it does tend to change. And mm -hmm. I think those things are important. I think if you're constantly arguing against what your body's asking for or ignoring what it's asking for repeatedly, you're missing a data stream that could be really important. Yeah. So what does your care package to the busy caregiver look like? Can you put one together on the spot? <laughs> oh, boy. There's so many nuances there, of whether they're nearby yeah, or far right, away. And if they're right. taking care of somebody you know, in, under their own roof or they're having to go, like you said, take care of a far-flung relative. But the care package for the caregiver definitely emphasizes a little bit of luxury and a little bit of self-care, like intense pleasure, something I wouldn't necessarily offer someone who is grieving. But somebody who is harried and constantly pouring out needs to fill the cup. And shorthand for that is something really luscious or just really satisfying. So if I happen to know them, that's easy because yeah. you know the person yeah. is chocolate or bust or if you happen to know what it actually makes their eyes perk up, you can just do that. But I try to give them something that feels a little bit naughty, a little bit like too pleasurable uh -huh. because you kind of I love overcorrect that. when yeah. you've been pouring it out. And probably something nutritious, I'm guessing, oh, from you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But my mother was a big believer in the nutritional power of chocolate. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, what did you receive that you appreciated, that you remember, if anything? A random I question. Have a, such a vivid memory of, I have a friend who at the time lived in a lemon orchard, and I'm obsessive about lemons. I've been teased repeatedly that this really should have been called the Book of Lemons, because lemons are in everything in the book. And she would pick me a box of lemons with the mm. leaves still on and just shove them oh, in a wow. priority mailbox and send them to me. That's awesome. And yeah. It has very little to do with nutrition. I mean, she was preventing scurvy, certainly. Mm. <laughs> but even the people who've said to me, well, I can't do what you do because I don't know how to cook. The only thing I know how to make is brownies. Or the only thing I know how to make is, you know, insert whatever the one thing they right. know how to make. And I always say, well, then make that. Because even in the worst case scenario, if the person can't eat what you've brought them, you have still conveyed to them that for the entire amount of time that it took you to think of it, get what you needed, put it together, and get it to them, you were thinking about them. And that is really powerful. Yeah. And it's powerful. Really, I think even if they don't grok all those steps, uh -huh. <laughs> there's something about like, oh, wow, look at that. Coachella cookies for me. Wow. Yeah. You know? it's and so then kind. maybe they, yeah. yeah, maybe they can eat them and they have to give them to the nurses or they give them to their kid's teacher or whatever, but you're still just paying it forward. But it almost doesn't matter what you make or what you show up with, it's as much the act of showing up 
and everything that that carries and everything that is implied. So true. I should have asked you this earlier, but I'll ask now or ask you to reflect on it, which spoke to me because I'm Greek, of course. So this (laughs) example of your Greek friend who made the koliva for your family, Mm -hmm. which is for the many, many (laughs) non-Greeks listening to this, it's a mourning ritual that usually takes place about nine days after the death. And Greeks we don't say that they've died. We say they've fallen asleep to reinforce Mm -hmm. the belief in the eternal life through resurrection after death. And so was that the first time that someone had made the koliva for you? Tell us what that was. Well, not only that, despite the fact that my uncle was once in the foreign service in Greece, and so I traveled there and Mm. have family that has, you know, a lot of friends and feels rooted there in a lot of ways. It was the first time I'd even heard of one. Mm. And my friend, who speaking of my devotion to lemons, this woman is she really understands the power of a lemon. Our bond is the mutual <laughs> right. understanding of lemons. Uh-huh. But she came back from a business trip, got off the plane, and put that thing together. And as a Greek person, I'm sure you understand that that is a job of work to put that together. That is yeah, not, it's it's not hard no, to make. It's just very time consuming. It's yeah, very time consuming. There's a lot of steps. There's no mix that you go get right. and put it together. And it came <laughs> and it was festooned with flowers. It was in the winter, but she'd gone to the store and gotten orchid blossoms. And the thing was so beautiful. And again, it conveyed that idea that, wow, this exhausted person had taken the time to put this thing together. And I love those gestures across cultural lines, too, both because they're educational and also because this idea of food building community, kind of getting back to that idea of like watching rice pudding move around the world and transform in all these places. And even the names from language to language to my crude non-linguistic ear was like, wow, there's a lot of similarity in the Mm -hmm. way these things appear. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like when somebody offers you something like that, that just comes from their family tradition, it's so powerful and moving and comforting. And also this thing was beautiful. And it was, the gesture was so meaningful. Can you describe what it looked like? The other thing I wanted to ask you was, did they put the first and last initials of your sister's name on the Koliva? That's optional, but. I remember that she did. And it, it was this beautiful bowl and filled with all different grains and seeds and decorated with pomegranate arils and dried fruit and sweetness and honey and covered in powders. It was it was startling because it wasn't part of my culture. So it I wasn't sort of looking at my watch going, up. Oh, it's just cue the Koliva you know, because I didn't know that such a thing existed. And so here this thing landed and it, it was so powerful. Anything like that that both grounds you in and it has such I'm sure you know better than I do that it has this meaning of here are all these seeds that you take in in the in the memory of your lost loved one and then the idea of taking in those seeds and then your life carries on and then right it sustains you to keep going until you become Koliva and it's all that kind of right nature. right all of that I was just so receptive to to all of that in that period of loss and mourning and thinking, you know, all those existential questions about what it all means and, you know, memory and legacy and all of that. I was just so struck by it. It was really beautiful. But but we had a memorial many months later uh-huh. and she made it again, a giant one. Yeah. I always laugh because I think that Greek people don't know how to cook for two people. No, that's impossible. For 20 people at a minimum. Yeah. So anytime you say I need six pans of Spanakopita, she's on it. You know, that's her, that's her <laughs> wheelhouse. So, uh, 
so we had this giant memorial celebration and she was able to make a giant one, which was much more comfortable for her than the tiny little one. For sure. Yeah, there's a reason that Greek cookbooks didn't really start getting produced in earnest probably until the late 20th century because no one ever uses measuring cups. <laughs> no, <laughs> and certainly not small ones. <laughs> definitely, right. definitely big ones. And I love the magpie quality of choosing foods from around the world and that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm also that way with tradition and in a way I could make it what I needed it to mean because I don't have all that history with it and that it, we could pull that out and make it be part of the kind of hodgepodge offering that we were doing. I love that. I love that kind of sampler quality of, you know, the sort of rich embroidery of pulling from all these places. Mm-hmm. Well, do you have any last thoughts? Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we didn't get to? I think we touched on most of it. The message that I hope comes across from the book and from this conversation is just start somewhere. Start where you are and don't be too limited. What I was hoping to offer people was not so much a group of recipes, but this idea that no matter what, you can begin. You have what is needed and you should try and make it more comfortable to talk about these things and the ways that we show up for each other and giving and receiving. Um, I think that's how we will knit everything back together. What a great message. We've been speaking with Janet Elsbach. She's the author of the book, Extra Helping, Recipes for Caring, Connecting, and Building Community One Dish at a Time. For non-caregivers, the recipes in this book are totally doable, and preparing any of them for an ill friend or a sibling who's the main caregiver in your family is a wonderful way to show them you care. For caregivers, when someone says, is there anything I can do? Say, actually, yes. Pick up a copy of Extra Helping and prepare anything for me from the Food for Solace chapter or one of those care packages from chapter six or really anything from the book. Anything works. In any case, we'll have a link on the AgeWise website to Janet's website where you can check out some of her other recipes, buy her book, and read her blog, which is called A Raisin and a Porpoise. That's P-O-R-P-O-I-S-E, which is very clever, which is the name of her website, A Raisin and a Porpoise, all one word. So Janet, thank you so much for being on the show, and thanks for this beautiful, beautiful book, which I encourage everyone to buy. Thank you so much. This was really a pleasure. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, please tell your friends about it and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced and edited by me. I'm on Twitter at Jana Panaritis, and as always, you can leave comments on the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. The AgeWise podcast is distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.